0: hit money is brought to you by interactive brokers designed for active traders and sophisticated investors interactive brokers offers trading assets in 150 markets with 27 different currencies interactive brokers also charges usd margin loan rates from 5.83 percent to 6.83 percent they've also got the ability to trade stocks bonds futures options commodities and more all from a single unified platform Brett and I use Interactive Brokers ourselves, and I honestly have to say that if you spend a considerable amount of time managing your investments, if you're spanning the globe looking for new stocks, I highly recommend using Interactive Brokers as your platform of choice. Restrictions apply, but for more information, visit IBKR.com, member SIPC, open an account with IBKR today. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing.
1: As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan, Brett, or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. This is the Investing Power Hour on Chit Chat Money. This is number 88. Although that we just kind of just keep counting into perpetuity. Uh, uh, My name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm joined as always by Ryan Henderson. We're talking whatever we want in the financial markets, investing stuff, business, finance. We do these live on YouTube. Uh, We'll probably, once we get to the new year, try to figure out an exact time that we're going to do these. Uh, I know only a few people do join us live, but I think it's nice and some people probably want the consistency in there, but we'll try to find the exact time where we can typically do these. But Ryan, as as for anyone that doesn't know, started a fun new job, so he's trying to figure out that schedule exactly. But Ryan, how are you doing today? Uh, I think you know it's a sad day because Bitcoin is above forty thousand again, huh? It's a sad day oh, uh, forever. I
0: everywhere. That. <laughs> yeah, I don't. <sighs> It's, it's interesting, pretty insane. no one cares anymore. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, not a lot of people care, but it's interesting that this is happening when it doesn't feel at least like with like my peer group, my friends, the people that are that were previously into Bitcoin, like it doesn't feel like it has that allure that like attractiveness and everyone talking about it kind of thing, like the hype is gone but the price continues to elevate when it first hit 40,000, like what was that two years ago now? It felt like the whole world was talking about it. I don't hear that at all anymore. And it's funny that this has happened after a bunch of whole like high profile bankruptcies, some, a lot of capital being pulled out of crypto, especially investments from like venture capital. I don't know. I just find that, Kind of staggering. Maybe, isn't there something about the fact that it's like a little more thinly traded now because like a lot of people lost access to their crypto? <laughs> like, <laughs> isn't it some like 75% of it's like seven, 75% of Bitcoin's like no longer in circulation because like it's lost accounts? I think that might be
1: 25%. Okay. But yes. I think 25% is estimated to be quote unquote unaccessible, which is great. But I think you are on to something. Well, well, maybe not even on to something. This is something that's been studied, reported on for a while, is that there is quite a bit of wash trading within the crypto world. So you just have seven or eight entities trading back and forth, back and forth. And, oh, wait, hey, the prices are ripping. This is the the future, guys. Look at this. Look at all this activity. But that's really it. I don't think we need to talk about it. As I said, uh, no one seems to really care anymore. But I thought it was just a sad day. We're seeing lots of emails, lots of tweets. Everyone's coming out of the woodwork. Jack Dorsey, Brian Armstrong, all the good stuff. They're like cockroaches that are coming out of the floorboards. Uh, I didn't even look at the document today, but did you have any topics they wanted to go through? I'm going to pull it up right now.
0: Yeah, I got a couple. Uh, I mean, the big one and the one that we kind of talked about and... I, I don't know if we called it, but we were definitely speculating about it. Is that a lot Hawaiian or Hawaiian Airlines was acquired? Uh, it was by Alaska Airlines. We thought we kind of speculated it was either going to be by Alaska or one of the big four. And we did a show on Hawaiian. And I mean, the gist of it is that it was doing $6 billion in revenue. It had a loyalty program with a lot of members on it, it had card holders that were frequently flying and and racking up miles on Hawaiian airlines. Good brand, decent brand. They had the routes that they were operating, which is a little harder than to just, you can't just like up and add routes that easy as it, even though it might seem like you could. And it was generating $6 billion in revenue. It had like $150 million market cap because they were losing a lot of money. I'm getting that right, I think. Maybe it was 250 million, but it had a lot of debt on it. The so our, our speculation was like, okay, this could be worth nothing because they could, you know, have to default on their debt, but this is worth something to other airlines because there's a lot of brown power here. There's a lot of value, and if it can be run more efficiently, or by someone who can kind of bear the weight of some of the losses for a little while, that it it's going to be really valuable. And so, Alaska Airlines was the one that kind of bit the bullet here. I think they acquired them for eighteen dollars a share in cash, or well, it hasn't gone through yet, but the offer is for eighteen dollars a share in cash, and Hawaiian was trading at like four or five dollars a share in cash, so. Congrats to all the Hawaiian holders. I will say it's not been a fantastic investment if you've been holding for a while, but uh, if you bought within kind of the last six months, you're sitting pretty right now. Do you want to guess what the 12-month
1: return is for Hawaiian Air stock as of this recording? I have it loaded up here right now.
0: Uh, Let's go up 5%.
1: (laughs) It's up 2%. Okay. so. If I remember see it seeing just... it was
0: like not up that much on a one-year time line, but I mean, it had like what 80% drawdown or something like that over the last year yeah. prior to this acquisition.
1: Yeah. And, and from all time highs, much, much worse. It's a, it's an interesting acquisition for sure. Alaska. Like seems to be quite a well-run business. If you're not on the West coast of the United States, or probably even the Pacific Northwest, the credit card is really huge. Like so many people have it. And, like, yes, airlines aren't the best businesses in the world. But one of, well, you know, after listening to some of the old monger stuff with him passing and then having that interview come out uh, that was pre recorded before his death, he talked about the railroads as he always does about the transition from bad miss- businesses to good businesses. If there are only a few airlines left, and it's really hard to get into the industry, and there's not really any competition, I don't, I don't know. It could. I feel like they could transition from to being better businesses. Maybe not great businesses, but I think they could transition to being better
0: businesses. Yeah, I still don't think rock solid. It's still like, even if you do have the miles and the big credit card bases. If you do start to rack up prices, which is ultimately going to be the one of the big ways for them to grow, like let's say there's four big airline, or uh, yeah, four big airlines in the U.S. I know there, that's not what it's going to be. I think it's probably going to culminate in like five. If there's four, what are they really going to do? I th- I think they'll in order to generate good returns, it would have to be that they kind of raise prices on their routes over time at above the rate they have in the past. Which even if you have that big installed base of cardholders and, and loyalty members, I think if, an air, if a discount airline came along that didn't have that installed base, it could still win a lot of share. I, th- I think it's still competitive, not as competitive as it once was because of the cardholders, but I'm reluctant to be getting into airlines unless they're trading at ridiculous, unless they're distressed, like maybe Hawaiian. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's not the exact same as railroads for sure.
1: I mean, it's consumer facing. It's a lot more in the public eye.
0: There's you got to deal with airport concessions. You what? can add. You can add new routes. You can't add new railroads.
1: Well, I, you know, if someone gets locked into a certain gate, you know, at a certain cool. airport, right? You know, there is something to be said there, but it's not like they own the airports, so.
0: A little different, right? I mean, you have to bid on the. I can't remember how the pricing works. It's like a percentage of each ticket is just given to the airline, right? And you have to pay for gate access. But
1: I I'm sure countries. Congress, are, it's, it's
0: different in every different in every country. I'm assuming. Yeah. I just I want to be so fast to like call this an investable industry quite yet.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> the at credit cards have at- been nice for them, but. Yeah. I, I don't think you, you can't just be like, well, our main business isn't that great, but we got the side business that's going to be decent. Yeah, the the credit the, the travel credit card industry seems hyper competitive outside of Amex. Um question from Tyler, are you going to play the inevitable merger arbitrage when the DOJ sues to block the merger? Do you guys think if JetBlue and Spirit go through, you will see more mergers between smaller players? Uh follow up, I guess it's kind of related it appears the market values of unprofitable barely profitable companies uh, on cash flow so that i think what you're he saying here is the market is valuing these unprofitable companies on cash flow so giving it a severe discount but the mergers are being valued on the, their assets it might mean some small unprofitable airlines might be cheap i hey i own a very small currently unprofitable airline that i think is cheap so i agree with you there but on the other one if we look at what it's 18 dollars a share right for hawaiian is that the price maybe you can confirm yeah, yeah sorry right now uh, the current price of hawaiian holdings 14 just under 14. so clearly people don't think that it's a high likelihood that this goes through i think people are worried about the hawaiian routes from seattle san francisco los angeles that alaska might they, they might think there's a monopoly there of kind of especially from Seattle, I'd say. As I don't think Southwest is going from there.
0: I thought they were. Nah,
1: I guess I, I'm not an expert on all these routes, but yeah. they might argue that there's only two players left with Southwest and Alaska there, and you wouldn't want to go from a two a three player to a two player industry, but I don't know. I don't know why. Still, this the, still the fifth
0: large <sighs> still either the fifth or sixth largest domestic carrier hit chat money is brought to you by interactive brokers designed for active traders and sophisticated investors interactive brokers offers trading assets in 150 markets with 27 different currencies interactive brokers also charges usd margin loan rates from 5.83 percent to 6.83 percent they've also got the ability to trade stocks bonds futures options commodities and more all from a single unified platform Brett and I use Interactive Brokers ourselves, and I honestly have to say that if you spend a considerable amount of time managing your investments, if you're spanning the globe looking for new stocks, I highly recommend using Interactive Brokers as your platform of choice. Restrictions apply, but for more information, visit IBKR.com, member SIPC, open an account with IBKR today.
1: It's not like Southwest buying it or Delta buying it. Yeah. This, I, I,
0: I, it is. Look, there could be some legal stuff. I could see that argument. I think this will probably have more difficulty passing than the JetBlue Spirit one, based on our conversation with Andrew Walker. But it's still, I still kind of look at it as we're really going to prevent. The seventh largest domestic carrier from buying this eighth largest or whatever like i don't know it feels kind of like uh, pointless like let us yeah, acquire it's, each it's other because yeah. i imagine that it's got to be possible for delta or american or southwest to add those routes from la to hawaii seattle to hawaii
1: well who killed hawaiian southwest And probably Alaska to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit of an extent there. Yeah. Tyler says Alaska and Hawaiian have much more market overlap than Spirit and JetBlue. So they'll definitely suit a block. I did read that they only have 12 or maybe it was eight overlapping routes. So I think they could do some sort of. Yeah, but they don't have that many
0: routes. Like there aren't that many routes to Hawaii to begin with.
1: But I think, honestly, they can make a, a pitch that it's going to be beneficial for the consumer because then they can say, look, we have these West Coast Alaska kind of core customers, members who might be, you know, I, I'm one of those who, oh, okay, hey, like we're Hawaiian partner now. We can offer them better deals to go to Hawaii and then also to Asia Pacific because that's a big part of Hawaii's business is going from the Hawaiian islands out towards Japan, Australia, et cetera. But yeah, who knows? I think it's too early to tell, but it could be a fun, I think, merger arb opportunity. I think what's interesting is Hawaiian's still going to operate, right? And there was a decent thesis. I I wonder what in the deal the the breakage fee is going to be, because that could be extremely helpful if Hawaiian, like the deal breaks and Hawaiian trades back to like $5 a share and they have
0: (laughs) way more cash on the balance sheet. Yeah, I mean, that could be the difference between them surviving or not, or yeah, having, exactly. having to go into, you know, chapter 11. The, it, I would be surprised if the break fee is like bigger than, I don't know, 100, 150 million.
1: Were you surprised that they Alaska wasn't able to get them at a lower price?
0: Yeah. But there is like, there is, Hawaiian is a lot more valuable under Alaska, right? Because- I, I think so, yeah. Okay, first of all, there's value in the planes. They own majority of their jets. I think at lease a couple from Airbus, but for the most part, they have actual physical planes that they own. They- have the, uh, I don't know, experience of operating those routes and the consumer kind of mind share when they go to Hawaii to, to book with Hawaiian, that's really valuable. And part of the problem right now for Hawaiian is it seems like, and it always feels like this with airlines, there's some supply chain issues, right? They weren't able to get all their jets up and running. One of their big airports was not fully operational for a while. Um they were having some engine issues with Pratt and Whitney. The, the, they weren't able to get those jets into operating in the fleet. So a whole bunch of like short-term stuff potentially, but they're running low on cash and they can't burn that much cash for a while. But if they get back to profitability levels that they had, I think they were earning like 200, 300 million dollars and kind of between 2015 and 2019, 200, 300 million dollars a year. I mean, Alaska has the ability to wait longer than Hawaiian does on their own, so it doesn't. I think Hawaiian probably knew that, uh, but at the same time, yeah, I guess four times roughly the current stock price seems like quite yeah. a buyout for a business that's in distress territory.
1: Yeah, I mean,
0: because you're not distress, really buying it at distress a distress might have been.
1: The stress might have been it might be a bit of a stretch because they had multiple years of cash on the balance sheet. Just you know, it wasn't distressed in the next few quarters. It was more two three year time. Unless yeah, sure, sure. Unless things get worse, yeah. The Japan customer is really screwing them. Not going back to Hawaii, but we don't need to relitigate everything of Hawaiian Air. Uh, I think it's also important is merging the mileage plans because those subscale mileage plans really struggle versus the big ones like Delta. United etc
0: yeah you got to be a quite the frequent flyer to Hawaii for that to be worthwhile but yeah I mean if you're just a West coaster if you can get the uh, mileage plan lumped in with Hawaii routes or Hawaiians routes that'd be pretty sweet
1: yeah I and mean, yeah they do have what and yeah Airlines is tough because I don't think I would buy like Alaska or Delta or American because I mean I just, they're just tough businesses. Time can and time again, they've proven that guess they're tough businesses.
0: What they're going to earn. Like,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: It's so unpredictable.
1: However, it seems like Alaska's is operating fairly intelligently. One, they basically killed Hawaiian's business and then bought them out, which is not a pretty, seems like a pretty savvy move to me. Second, they somehow are partnering with like that One World Alliance thing where you can just, use their miles for american flights so it's like really helping uh keep them you know if there's going to be anyone that i think makes the leap to being one of the next big four airlines i would bet it's alaska i mean they've really they started out from basically nothing 30 years ago and i mean they just continue to grow yeah could be a fun stock to research for the show but i know that no one really even likes doing it no one even likes covering airlines. <laughs> yeah
0: i don't want to do alaska the uh i'm glad we did hawaiian i wish we would have trusted ourselves and said like well this thing could go bankrupt but it's probably worth something to another airline the i want to switch gears though because we've gone long one on question
1: One follow-up from Tyler, I think he's referencing the consolidation thing. Do you think that he is asking, do you think that was Buffett's pre-COVID thesis that things would consolidate to higher returns on invested
0: capital? I think yes, but he admitted he was wrong. Yeah, and I also don't think he was wrong to sell. Some people kind of gave him a hard time for that, but I think at the start of covid that probably was the right move i don't know how much the stock is up since then but they've still kind of struggled let's okay. uh i want Next to hop topic, to the spotify yeah. spotify layoffs are you
1: disappointed I... that we're the well let's go through it and then we can talk investing you go through it
0: first sure uh Basically the gist of it is that they are laying off 17% of their staff. I saw some figure that said this will amount to like $350 million in annualized savings. Obviously there's going to, it's going to take a while for this to trickle through in the income statement. Basically they said, listen, capital isn't free anymore and we have to rein in our costs. And I don't know. Some of it, was and it's never really there's no what's the what's the term there's no such thing as a diplomatic hand grenade i don't think there's any way to properly tell people they're being laid off but it felt like there was some finger pointing to like the economy like the global like interest rates and it kind of to me was like we talked about this yesterday where what's that show I think you should leave or whatever. And the guy's like, it's the meme of him being like, we're all trying to find a guy who did this. And it's like, they yeah. let their costs get out of control and now they have to rein it in. I think if you're a Spotify shareholder, it's hard not to like this because it seems like they are going to take this whole year of efficiency thing seriously. But at the same time, they invested in a lot of things with kind of reckless abandon especially in the podcasting realm. And I would raise some serious concerns if that's going to be like the strategy moving forward where rates are cheap or rates are low. We're going to plow money into everything we can find. With And we've seen tidbits where they were not cognizant of the cost. They didn't care about the costs associated with some of these uh, podcasting deals. And then they're just going to rein it all in when rates go up. I don't really want to go through that cycle over and over if I'm a shareholder.
1: Yeah. I think one thing is with this letter, I think investors should understand who the audience is here. They're talking to the journalists and the employees, and they want to just make as best sounding excuses as possible. So they just don't get bad rep and that's what they got to do. Look, I think for the investors, you should just listen to the CFO who goes to those investment conferences about two or three times a year He'll say more straightforward, look, we just needed to cut costs. And I think it's pretty clear. With this, yeah, it's a good thing. I think on the expenses stuff, yeah, I mean, look, they had three to four years of ballooned expenses. They were overspending on stuff. Uh, They weren't listening. It's definitely something you can't forget. Um, They did fire, essentially. I would guess that they fired that podcast content person. That seems to not care about costs, which is good, I think. And a lot of their stuff
0: has been successful within the. uh, Go ahead. Here's my issue is that people can point to the podcast content guide not being, not caring about costs. That comes down to, sorry, not, that that, that comes down to the executive team. If you give them the liberty to not care about costs, they won't care about costs. They get the idea. Guessing the the bulk of her compensation is associated with her pay at Spotify and not being a shareholder. So, uh, like, I don't think she's in the wrong here. I don't think she necessarily. I don't know if I would have done anything different if I were trying to dominate the podcast category. Maybe I wouldn't have done so much like celebrity type shows, but. I think they made some of the right choices. They just like spent way too much doing it. Yeah.
1: I mean, those celebrity shows of just like, Hey, celebrity or a celebrity. That yeah, never works. They have a podcast. I like that. Never works. The, the existing shows make a lot more sense. And I think they've done quite well with that. Even if they had to overspend a bit to get mass market uh, and to become the mass market, excuse me, the market leader. 17% is a lot of people. It, hopefully kind of the last one and hopefully they just don't start aggressively hiring people again in kind of a Google or Alphabet fashion and just saying well I guess we just hired all these people back in a couple quarters but kind of think they're going to start printing a lot of money
0: what do you think yeah maybe I wouldn't be surprised if they turn around and we're like we found this new area to invest in (laughs) AI. We're we're investing a lot of our resources in hiring across AI because it's going to revolutionize the music industry. I would hope oh, they already did that, that. They've learned their lesson.
1: They've. They, I mean, I, I. What do you think they've spent on these AI stuff? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. And yeah. the products have done. The products have been, Seem to
0: be doing quite well. I'd say. We'll see. Okay. Over, under, 10% operating margins, 2024.
1: 2024? Oh, under. I mean, I think it's guide for 2025, right? Uh, 10%. So um, under. I can't remember exactly either, but I'd
0: say under. Yeah, that's probably fair. It's a bummer they weren't. <laughs> I don't know. It's a bummer they weren't doing this when I was still a shareholder, but... <laughs>
1: Well, I think that's, yeah. I don't know. I, no, I Not I, like, I, no, I'm, it's a bummer
0: for me that they weren't doing this when I was still a shareholder because maybe I would have seen like the light at the end of the tunnel here. But it felt like, because coming into this year, they talked a lot about like efficiency and like being resourceful and maybe cutting costs. And we didn't really see it until basically the last couple of months. We really started to see it trickle through in the income statement and i think it was just wish i would have uh wish i would have stuck around a little bit longer but it seems like they're finally putting their actions behind their words with the whole resourcefulness efficiency stuff yeah how would the, you oh god how would you deliver news like this
1: uh I don't know if oh. you can do much better f- than Eck did here. I mean, you can quibble with some of the word choices. Uh, I like how he was saying, essentially, we just have a lot of people doing work around the work, which I was like, hey, does he listen to us? Because that's one of the things I like to say is we need all these people to manage all these people. Uh, but like he's talking to the employees. You're firing 1,500 people. You're disrupting their lives. You got to try to be as focused on them as possible and saying, taking ownership of the mistake and saying, look, we like things were different. Yeah. It might be a hollow excuse to say that the cost of capital is changing things (laughs) because I don't know if that's actually the reason, Uh, but it's, it's, it's hard to say like, look, we hired too many people. That's it. Uh, You got to try to hopefully explain it with people. I would have no idea. Is there a good way to do it? No, I think the best way is to not is always be a little behind on hiring, right? Like some of these companies say. Does Netflix ever do a layoff? No, because they are very, very efficient with how many actual numbers they have on their
0: on their team. Tyler says Google's employees started sweating when they read X letter. See, so here's the thing, and, se- <laughs> and Salesforce's <laughs> the well, the Salesforce has gone through this. I mean, they did a big layoff with the activist stuff, right? 10% Did they, uh, they've done some
1: layoffs. Yes. Uh, I want to table that. There's some funny stuff with
0: Salesforce, but continue with Spotify. We'll hit that next. Like I'm thinking if I'm a, if I'm an employee at Spotify and even kind of reading this letter, it made me, I don't know if it was like inspired, but it makes you think like, I don't want to be in that situation. I don't want to be one of the people that gets laid off. And it kind of, I would imagine, inspires you to work a little harder. When Google right. announced the layoffs, they were like. protest. That did not seem like it. the reaction. <laughs> it was like, how dare they? They just care about the shareholders. Like, yep, yeah, yeah. what's going on? I know, there, I got to say the thing. <laughs> it's like, okay, who's going to be the next people that are laid off? Probably the people protesting. I know the.
1: I gotta say the the big tech. It's not employees, a nonprofit. Yeah, the big tech employees are some of the, or uh, what was the word everyone uses? Entitled. I gotta say they get a little bit of entitlement. Those are some of the best jobs in the world. Um, but yeah, I think it's it should motivate people. Like Netflix has an interesting one. I don't know if I could find it off the top of my head, but I've seen it float around from time to time about what they. I'm pretty sure they probably say this to everyone that they're hiring. They posted, I think, on the investor relations page is, like. We're not a family, we're a team. The team is trying to win and we're going to have people that support the team and contribute the most to the team, the best. But it's not about hiring people and being a part of the family uh, because we're here to try to win. Like if you're not supporting, we're going to cut you. And I like that approach. Like you can't just go in and say, oh, we're all one big family. Oh, it's all right. It's not, you have that outside of work.
0: Yeah. Uh, Netflix seems to be kind of the most blunt about it they they, I mean they state it from the get go they're like listen we not only want to be good at hiring but we're gonna uh, there's value adds in firing too like if you're not contributing enough to the team like we're we're gonna be we're gonna try to be methodical about firing as well and, and they actually yeah. I think there's like spots on their website where they talk about that the difficulty i think if you signed on as a spotify employee or a google employee is there is that talk about family it's like the you're right. part of like the google spotify family like we're we're building this together and it's like for them to flip the switch and say well you know they raised rates what are we going to do now we're a team like go get another job it's kind of like then i'd be a little more frustrated but if you're at netflix and you kind of know it going in i don't know yeah, yeah. It's the, an expectations thing.
1: Yeah, I think what's interesting is Netflix is like, look, we're paying you guys like professional athletes. We might be a little bit harsh in treating you. It's not the perfect analogy, but you know it might be a bit cutthroat if we're paying you $500,000 a year.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is.
1: Did you ever watch the BlackBerry movie when they – Offered everyone $10 million a year to switch to them. Did you see that? No, no, you should want it. They did it, they cheated though. They they offered backdated stock options, but I think that's a whole another thing. Uh, the Salesforce, another company in this category, right? Did you ever see the conference call with Mark Benioff? I think it was the latest one where they talked about their adjusted operating margin at 31% this quarter. And he was on the call, and they're like, "Wow, like you're really hitting your profit numbers. What happened here?" And he was like, "You know, I'm just surprised and shocked at how profitable this business can be. And it's like we didn't even do that much, and we're just so profitable." For example, they did they did an ad on the the Orb in uh, Las Vegas, which uh, also Autodesk did. If yeah. you didn't see that too, that's nice. What a good, stupid. Some money.
0: Sorry. Probably for both yeah, yeah, businesses, but yeah. I, I imagine it's specifically for Autodesk. Like, who are you? Who are you targeting?
1: Apparently, they had the major conference in Las Vegas that um, weekend, but still, like that—that wow. that was the reasoning. Is like they wanted their uh, clients to, in the architecture clients coming in,
0: you know. Well, it's it still awesome, does sense. They already. They already came to Vegas for your conference. I think they know who you are. I think think they're aware. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But they said, wow, like
1: Salesforce is like, wow, 30% operating margin. How how is this possible? It's like, okay, one, do you not know your unit economics? like, it's software, man. Two, can you give a prediction on what their gap operating margin is? 18% I think I saw. Damn, pretty good. 17%. That's an approximate fourteen percent gap. Actually, exactly fourteen percent gap. We even go to decimals there. So, whoa, hey, we got our profit margins are above thirty percent if we just don't include stuff. I I love the classic one. Someone on Twitter always says this, (laughs) where it's like, "Look, companies need to hire me." And when they say our adjusted profitability is at this number, we missed our target. All I need to do is tell them, "Look." Just adjust it further and we can hit these numbers. We just take out more stuff. It's in, yes. it, it, it's incredible sense. but.
0: So I really, really don't wondering. get it. Like if you're Benioff, you're a shareholder, a, a pretty big shareholder. I think he owns, what was it? Like three or 4% of the stock still today. And you're selling constantly. Why do you care so much about this number? Like why? Adjusted operating margin or. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Like you're a big shareholder. You know it's not real earnings. You're not, it's not a distressed
1: stock. It's not like you're you're not trying to prove to Sorry. Wall Street anything. Well, maybe they are trying to prove to Wall Street something, but you don't need to like prove something to get financing.
0: I know it is kind of funny. So like it felt like two or three quarters ago, Benioff on the calls was talking to uh Elliott management. More or less, they were like, yeah, we got to get more efficient. We're taking some tough steps uh, and basically saying like what Elliot kind of needs him to say. And now I don't know if Elliot's backed off or whatnot, but he kind of, I don't know, Benioff's back to being the original Benioff. Because two to three quarters, he was like, I had some real self-reflecting. And uh, after some real self-reflection, I think we're going to have to cut some costs. It's like self-reflection. Or
1: now, well, we just went through the summer of AI, Ryan, and I just had Dream. Have you been to Dreamforce? It's it's a family. It's it's a whole. Yeah, talk we about gotta, family. We got to get, we got to fly all these remote people from around the country into San Francisco to party for a week at the Salesforce Tower, which is the biggest waste of money in the entire industry. <laughs> Uh, and then we need to make $10 million commercials with Matthew McConaughey that make yeah. absolutely no sense and plaster them across every, okay. the most expensive ad slots in America, football games. Let's how, do that. Beautiful.
0: How hard do you laugh every time you see that McConaughey commercial? It makes no sense. Oh, I love it. Just him in the forest oh, surrounded it. by squirrels. And then being like, we got to trust our AI. And like, how? Oh, oh. <sighs> It's gotta be the most pointless ad. Of, no, of, the only, most second I can think of.
1: IBM Watson X.
0: Yeah, what that's can true. Watson
1: X do? What can Watson X remember when they had that football player and there, uh, there was every football game. They're like, "What can IBM do for your business?" Is whatever. My the ones I laugh at though are when they do the AWS ones. When they're like, "AWS is doing trillions of simulations to get the NFL schedule," and then. <laughs> They're like, think of what AWS is doing for the NFL. Think of what they can do for your business. And I just think of the people on the couch, like, yeah, my IT budget <laughs> should go to AWS. We could AI up this. I'm just some small business, but let's AI, let's AI this thing up, dude. We need that. They use AWS.
0: I love my yeah. team,
1: but I think like with Salesforce, AWS, I uh, think. With AWS,
0: I kind of sit there and think like maybe they're trying to masquerade profits or something like that. Maybe they don't want to be ridiculously profitable. But with Salesforce, quite clearly over the last year, it's been like, let's try to be, you know, let's try to be profitable. Let's turn on the operating leverage. So I would imagine the McConaughey commercials are one of the first things to go. Because it doesn't mean anything. It's not like people i'm guessing i don't use salesforce but i'm guessing most of the people that use salesforce are getting all these stupid ai cross sells, and they're like dude get this out of my freaking interface just let me use the platform and they're just trying to upsell yeah i
1: mean i know this ai crap i know some people that work at salesforce sales or did um and they're so frustrated all the ai like Primers they had to read about and all the stuff they're trying to sell people. It's, yeah, I think the difference between what makes like AWS an attractive business to me from a culture standpoint and Salesforce not is that Salesforce has to be pressured to try to focus on a margin number. And they're just like focus on these arbitrary targets when really what matters is generating cash flow, generating returns on invested capital. But AWS, I was just listening to a a podcast this morning, actually, funny enough, with the CEO, who's there's like that Norwegian sovereign wealth fund that basically says, look, we own every company in the world, so everyone's gotta do this podcast with us. That's why they get the greatest guests, like that Ryanair guy. Uh, which is funny. I think like as a side note, they said at the beginning that if you the sovereign wealth fund of Norway owns one percent of Amazon. Um, but let me look at okay, one second. So they said that. If you divide it per citizen in Norway, every citizen in Norway owns, I think it was 15,000 uh, Norwegian kroner of Amazon, which is almost $1,500. So not bad. Not bad if you're in Norway.
0: Good for Norway.
1: Yeah, they do it right with that sovereign wealth fund. They're quite good at it. Uh, but besides the point, they talked about like focusing on what their customers want, focusing on efficiency. Focusing on like getting economies of scale, reducing the costs, and then the profits will take care of themselves. Like I don't think AWS is going. Look, we want twenty five percent operating margins this year. Look, we want thirty percent operating margins this year. They're like, no, we we're focusing on those things, and the profits will take care of them. Yeah, that's kind of yeah, what I think. They, and that's what makes me like that business better.
0: Feels like AWS kind of knows its north star, and everyone is cognizant of that when they're making decisions whereas salesforce it seemed like they had like a come to jesus moment this year when they were like oh wait like oh we're supposed to be oh we're supposed to be making money like let's yeah i guess we should make some decisions to start making money yeah i still it still feels like there's so much waste to that company whatever i want to talk about a company where there's very little waste british american tobacco uh do you read Read about the, you, you're the first one that mentioned it to me, but did you read about I the, the, the
1: press Yeah, I read the press release. Yeah, they do. These British companies seem to just do their Q3 and Q1 updates, which just give various data points that they want to give. Um, And they're doing a fat goodwill impairment on the American operations, which, and I think it was 30 billion, 25 billion you wrote here. Either way, quite a large number. It's probably being overhyped though, because this is not actually anything has, nothing has changed. They just bought Reynolds American or whatever it was called. And you have to put the goodwill on your balance sheet. And sometimes the auditors come in and say, look, what is the value of this thing? And they said, it's much lower. They have to write it down. And honestly, this is basically what we had expected. We've just covered British American tobacco and all tree group on the podcast, go listen to those for the full analysis on those episodes. But that's it, right. We, we'd already really, ha- did this change anything for you? For you? Because it seems like I was already pricing that in.
0: Yeah. It's kind of strange to me that the stock fell 9% after this. First of all, like, I don't think anyone that owned this stock was owning it for Reynolds and. What are some of their other American brands? Uh, I'm blanking on them, but well, the, Ameri- that's American. that's the parent,
1: the parent, the the that's the parent it. Newport Camel.
0: Yeah, I don't think they were owning them for the goodwill that sat on the balance sheet. I think pretty much everyone knew that these businesses were in kind of terminal decline. So they see the results every quarter, and it's not like these auditors are seeing something different. I imagine. It seems like they probably just finally, the time came where they had to write it down. The other part that I thought was funny was British American Tobacco fell 9%, and then Altria fell like 3%, which maybe you can make a case that if if there's something in the write down that is attributing like bigger volume declines than expected, then right. it, it impacts Altria as well but Philip Morris declined and Philip Morris doesn't have an American cigarettes business. So why is oh, that and, down and, one and a half percent?
1: Interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I, I don't think they changed guidance too much. I mean, I, and the U S market is, is a big struggle and we'll probably get to this, I think, because I have a tweet from uh, one of our, let's say colleagues in the FinTwit universe. Yeah. I don't th- honestly think this is a big deal. And and if they can use the tax write-off as an advantage, some sort of deal, like, look, it's probably good. Write it all down. I don't care.
0: Big goodwill write down, less taxes, stock drops, bigger buyback. Formula Bro for down. success? Bro down. Yeah, yeah. If you all right, combine what, uh... the dividend yield, which currently sits at, I want to say, 9.3%, in the buyback, they've got like an eleven percent uh, shareholder return yield.
1: You can also I, include
0: kind of the net debt, but I don't know.
1: Breaking news, Ryan: the dividend yield of British American Tobacco is nine point six percent. Really? So
0: someone said one point six. I I mentioned this, and a bunch of people were like. Yeah, it's a trap though. The dividend will get cut. And it's so, like, why would the why would the dividend get cut? They weren't paying it out of their goodwill. <laughs> I know exactly. They're paying it exactly. out of their cash flow. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah, but what about the debt? It's like they're paying that down too. Yeah. It's like uh nothing happened here in the last month or the last quarter that surprised management, would be my guess. Like nothing yeah. fundamentally in the American cigarette businesses like changed, I would guess. I do think the disposables is a problem for them. And I, I yeah. still, we, I expressed some of these concerns in our last episode that in America right now, it seems like the volume declines make these a more difficult investment than they've been kind of in the past. Like at 10% volume declines, it starts to get a little more difficult to shake out the math to revenue growth. But- yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't be. It's not the goodwill impairment that would be worrying me. Yeah.
1: And what was it a month ago that we did British American tobacco? Maybe less. Honestly, I can't even remember at this point. It. I don't think anything's changed from that episode, which is quite interesting. But we'll say from one of our FinTwit colleagues, this is the uh, tweet. He's got a private account now, so might not just say his name. One thing I will say about British American tobacco, they have a comment on being 50% smokeless by 2035. For more context, they said that now their goal is to have uh, 50% of their revenue in 2035 from non-cigarette business, essentially. And he said that's a long ways away. Philip Morris International is going to be 50% for these new categories in two to three years Uh, meaning Philip Morris is kind of light years ahead of this field. Now, if you look at kind of the stock charts, Altria uh, and Imperial, the total returns over the last 10 years have been way better than Philip Morris International. So like, even if they're light years ahead, the stock chart actually hasn't done, the stock hasn't even done better, but it's quite interesting to think about. I think what's interesting is they could definitely hit this 50% target, but uh you know, like that uh the Anakin and Padme meme, where it's like, and it's gonna be from growth of smokeless, right? You know, because uh, i wonder if the cigarette business collapses by twenty or thirty-five, then they could easily <laughs> hit fifty percent, right?
0: Yeah, this is a good point. The the Philip Morris uh smokeless becoming 50% of the portfolio, they're doing that while volumes of the cigarette business are basically flat. Maybe they're down a little bit, but they're not seeing steep declines like a lot of the American cigarette manufacturers are. Whereas British American Tobacco is saying 50% and they're now nowhere near it While the uh, while the cigarettes business is declining quite sharply. So I would say I don't, it feels like Philip Morris is kind of light years ahead on these newer nicotine initiatives. And we've talked about that before where the returns are different. The return profile has been way better for Altria and I think you said Imperial, but then, than Philip Morris, I just, I can't help but think it looks a lot different over the next 10 years and part of that is because cash from Philip Morris has been invested into things like Swedish Match and Icos uh, Icos and building out these much better businesses that should be major cash flow drivers for Philip Morris over the next 10 years and hopefully that cash flow will continue to get dividended and dividended out and bought back
1: if only they didn't have the darn currency exposure that's a big so one. No, not Altria. No one, I, I like, know, look, Fillmore, just... the currency exposure for a company like Fillmore's International is legitimate. Yeah. And geopolitical too. Yeah. Is, Russia. It, is yeah, it legitimate yeah, for? Yeah. Belarus. You got the Middle East. You got Pakistan. You got like a lot of the revenue comes from markets where you would not be shocked if the currency devalued by hundred percent.
0: I don't know. I kind of hear that. I think like, how's it any different? Or I think, how's it any different for some of the other stocks in our portfolio? Like, well, like it's just because
1: their exposure is not, is to a lot of areas that are not as, they're just a little riskier.
0: Yeah, but the bulk of their business isn't. Yeah, I guess a lot of Europe exposure. I don't know. Like, how's it different for LVMH? They've got well, whatever,
1: five, 5% currency. I'd be a lot more confident in the ch- Japanese and Chinese currencies than, uh, than Pakistan and Nigeria, to be fair.
0: Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I mean, Japan's probably a big market for Philip Morris as well. Really? That's true. That's true. That's true.
1: Yeah. They got, yeah. Wide ones. Okay. Anything else on that? We got a couple of questions I think we could hit. Oh, all right. First one. I think this is a new listener, so thank you. Or maybe someone first time joining. Are you guys buying coupon on this dip? Uh, well, I own it. I what bought did? recently. It has, I guess, the last month or so. Sometimes it dips just because the currency stuff with Korea, but I really like this business. And it's what I'm going to keep following.
0: Fifteen no, sure.
1: dollars You have never owned it. Is there anything that's a hold up for you?
0: No, I own it. It's one of four stocks own it. I own in my Roth IRA. The there we go. So hey, both buyers now. Yeah. yeah. After after we went over the business, I want to say was that three months ago about shares. It, I don't. Know, it feels very difficult to displace them in South Korea. And I've been pretty impressed by their wallet share that they've been able to garner and continue to grow, even within their like. You would look at them and you say thirty four percent of South the entire South Korean population are active users on Coupon. If they're they and of- that's even not kept before counting double memberships or, you know, you know what I mean or family use. Yeah, I mean, as a percentage of households, it's probably much higher. So. You would think, like, what ridiculous saturation. But they've actually been able to grow users in spite of that. Now, some of that might be coming from the international markets, but also that revenue per household and the wallet share they're getting just continues to grow and grow. And there's, I can't remember who had the quote, but basically it was like great management teams and great businesses always find a way to expand their TAM. I don't think saturation should be the biggest concern here. I think there's ways they can drive incremental uh, revenue and margin enhancing features across the platform that will help deliver good returns, even though, you know, they have whatever 50% already of the available shoppers, probably more in South Korea using the platform.
1: Yeah, it's... I like the management team too. I agree with all that. Uh, we have a comment here that they are apparently doing good, well in Taiwan now. They did mention on the conference call they're going to invest more into that category. That's why their emerging offerings uh, is like losing more money, but they say they're getting better returns than they did in the early days with coupon in South Korea. So I think, look, the losses will honestly a good thing if revenue is growing higher in that category and losses accelerate because they can weather that for the cash flow that the South Korean operations generate. I think a thought experiment that makes sense to me. I know a lot of people own C-Limited, but I would be much more confident in saying that Coupon could disrupt C-Limited or one of the local players in Taiwan versus the other way around. How would, after studying Coupon so much, how would someone disrupt them in South Korea? Seems quite hard. You have to probably spend $10 billion in capital expenditures just to get to where they are today. But then at that point, coupon is going to be even further and further ahead of you.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can you can certainly replace the like digital interface. There's other businesses that do a good job, other e-commerce businesses in South Korea that are also large, but none of them have the vertical integration, at least to not the extent that coupon does it. That's the hard part to replicate. And it's really what's driven... Amazon, it's been the backbone of Amazon over the last 25 years. It's given them the flexibility to do so many other things. And that's kind of the hard stuff. And it feels like coupon's gotten really good at it. So yeah, like you said, it, I think it'd be really hard to compete with them. Yeah. For any listeners uh,
1: that don't know, there is a, we have a podcast that we did on Coupon a while back, uh, actually not even too long ago go listen to that for the full details on how that business operates. As we wrap up here, looks like we got about we started about 5 minutes late, so I think we got about 5 minutes left. Uh Tyler says, any summary thoughts from your defense sector podcast? Do you guys think these companies would be interesting given the more volatile geopolitical environment? I like Lockheed Martin. Uh the best out of these, but I'd rather get them at a pretty given the low growth I'd want them at a pretty discounted price. The aerospace segment for Lockheed seems fairly fairly solid, and then I'm trying to remember was it Northrop Grumman or was it no General Dynamics. The submarine business also seems pretty damn moody. Yeah. Uh Besides that, those are the two solid ones that are, like mm. have long term. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't buy it based on geopolitical stuff though. You got to buy it just if it's cheap, like
0: yeah yeah. Ideally, you really want to buy it when the geo political situation has kind of slowed down
1: yeah because it gets priced in pretty quickly
0: yeah the i don't know if i really liked the defense sector all that much like very good businesses they're going to be very difficult to replace but i came away thinking like are you going to get that good of returns like will it be that much better than treasuries i don't know you're buying it at a time when geopolitical like tension is really high and a pretty steep earnings multiple relative to their history. So yeah, I kind of came away with like a little bit of a little bit less interest than when we went into that month. Well, yeah. What
1: if I told you that Lockheed Martin stock is a down over the last year? Um, let me give you some numbers here and see what you think, whether the narrative matches up uh today lockheed's p.e is 16. let's look at see if they have dividend yield dividend yield 2.7 and let's do shares outstanding over the last 10 years see what it's declined at a little refresher it has declined by 22.7 percent those numbers make a lot more sense at a p.e closer to like 12 and 13 to me given the low growth 16 like i think it's gonna be hard to lose money and if again this is a classic example of what's your time horizon what's where are you as an investor like for me at this stage no but if i'm older like yeah this is a wealth preservation
0: one for sure yeah i don't know Earnings multiple of 16, historical growth hasn't been that great. Like, Well, it's it's been durable, but- it hasn't Dur- been-
1: Durable, but low, yeah.
0: Yeah. And share count reduction of 2%. I can't remember what the dividend yield was. Kind of feels like you're getting maybe 5 to 6% returns in single digits. Why not take treasuries? That's kind of my- Yeah. If I were, I be if higher, were close to retirement, would you just- like really be boosting your exposure to treasuries right now i don't know if i'd say like yeah. the whole portfolio but if i remember taxes though cash.
1: Ta- ta- taxes remember taxes hit that pretty hard yeah that's true i don't know depends what tax bracket i'm in i'd say depends if it's in a tax-free account <sighs> yeah yeah, but the, I think they've come down. Let's actually look at what three-month is right now. Three-month treasury yield. Oh, wait. Stupid Google search. Three-month treasury yield. Okay.
0: Five and a half. CNBC
1: right? always has. For anyone that wants to know, CNBC is probably the best there. Oh, well. I guess, yeah, it probably hasn't changed just because the Fed hasn't changed. 5.4% still. Uh, But it hasn't risen. That's pretty good. Because the Fed is... Uh, you know saying and that inflation really was it. what
0: two three percent
1: yeah and I think if you go even more recent months like it's a zero now because they do the 12 month stuff there's all sorts of manipulations with inflation yeah five point four percent not bad not bad and that's why some of these places can offer four and a half five percent five and a half percent
0: yeah although. The uh uh, never mind that's unrelated but the uh i was looking through some of those checking accounts because i'm thinking about trying to find a new high yield one would you if you you can get a like a savings account that yields you four and a half percent you feel comfortable with the bank Would you own any treasuries Uh oh uh no, I'm not owning any treasuries in general.
1: Like, unless, unless I can find, uh, unless I can't find, like, it's, I'll own it if uh, I don't have any stock ideas. But I think with little money I have, I think I do have stock idea, enough stock ideas. I only need to have like just five or six um, or something like that, where the cash I have, I'm just going to have pretty lean, you know personal balance sheet the rest will just be in stocks
0: i uh i like munger's approach of just investing with a 10 plus year horizon into your 90s yeah that's true it's not, not a bad way to put like, it. it it's probably not good if you need the money like if you're gonna need the cash you don't want to do that for sure but it's more fun it's way more fun to do that for people that are interested and like looking at businesses, I find it way more satisfying to just like keep investing the same way for the rest of my life if you can. Yeah, it's
1: true. Yeah. Even if it's like not optimal. It's like the people that say, I think I heard someone, one of the you know financial writers or something say one time, look, I had the flexibility. I just bought my house in cash. Everyone says uh, that was a dumb move but I didn't want to deal with any of the mortgage. You know what I mean? Like he was like, look, I wanted to have no busy work, no nothing with it. It doesn't matter to me. That's not what I enjoy. So I eliminate all that time of just managing this mortgage and stuff. And he just bought the house with cash. Now, a lot of people don't have that flexibility, but I think it's a similar thing. It's like, okay, look, is it optimal for Munger to sit in treasuries? Probably for his family. But what does he enjoy doing? He does that, all this stuff. I will say though, he did say on that podcast that he did, that he recorded right before he died. He was like, I only have four investments Lee Lou, Berkshire Hathaway, and these apartments, and something else. And I was like, Berkshire Hathaway is <laughs> that's not like, oh, I just own four stocks. Like, one Lee Lou is investing in a lot of stuff, and then Berkshire Hathaway is definitely not like, oh, I just own one stock. He was kind of implying that he only has his eggs and he has four, you know kind of four baskets like when people say don't put all your eggs in one basket oh yeah the other one's costco and we're going long here but i don't know (laughs) i would take that away and say look i only need to own four stocks
0: yeah that was a good interview i like that at the end or at one point they're like he's like i think john calls and asks like you're on the board of costco right he's like yeah i'm sort of the elder member (laughs) yeah it's like 99 and it's a couple of days away from his passing it's just kind of i don't know it's so funny that he was so sharp right to the end, very end but yeah good for him good for him yeah uh
1: all right uh that's gonna do it i will say if you like our podcast you should listen to some of our friends at the j row show and the smattering smattering has been doing good stuff uh and we're gonna actually probably have one of their shows in our feed as a little teaser to go you know Hopefully inspire you guys to listen to them. But the j ro Show just had Chris Bloomstrand on. Go search that wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe there. We had an interview out today with me and two guys talking the luxury market. That would be uh, Sleepwell Capital, the anonymous account, as well as Leandro from Best Anchor Stocks, two quality analysts along those lines. That was a fantastic discussion. Hour 50 minutes, but... You don't have to listen to the, we would enjoy if you listen to the whole thing, but there's good snippets if you just kind of come in and out. There's a lot, a lot of good stuff there on the luxury market. We're going to continue with the luxury market this month. we got LVMH coming out, then we're going to be doing Ferrari and then Hermes. All right. right. Let's hit the disclosure. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or a recommendation. Ryan and I and any guests on this podcast may own securities discussed on this episode. Uh, may have owned them in the past. We may own them now. We may buy them in, or sell them in the future. None of this is investment advice. All right. Thank you, everyone. And we'll see you next time.